0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: It is time now for edition number one of Brian Lehrer's radio show and podcast about parks and recreation. We're trying something new. It's a TV club where we'll watch a show at night, I'll live tweet it, and then on the morning after... We'll recap it and talk about issues that it raises. The Parks and Recreational final, uh, Parks and Recreation final season debuted in all its wonky glory last night. Oh, and if you haven't watched the premiere yet and plan to, you might want to um, take a walk for the next 20 minutes or so. La-di-da. Avoiding spoilers is up to you. Fair warning has now been given. Here with me now to talk about the show is NPR's Linda Holmes, the host of NPR's entertainment and pop culture blog, Monkey C, and Jeremy Gonkars, who is the senior director for designations From the Wilderness Society. He's going to explain some of the land use issues that came up in the first episode because this show will live at the intersection of the laugh lines and the geeky parks and land use issues that Amy Poehler and friends raise on TV. So, hi Linda, hi Jeremy, thanks for joining our show on Parks and Recreation.
2: Oh, hello. Hi there.
1: So, Linda, it's Pawnee 2017. This show actually jumps ahead in time three years from last season. As a plot device and a comedy device, what are they setting up here?
2: Well, I think it's a show that is is really precious to the people who make it, and I get the sense that part of what they wanted to do was have an opportunity to really tell the story of where these people wind up after all this work that they've put in and all the the growth that they've experienced. Um, And, of course, there are opportunities for little gags about, you know, uh, about, uh, Kevin James starring in the Newborn movie, and, and they get those little jokes as well. But I think a lot of it has to do with giving a satisfying conclusion.
1: So I want to play a clip that explains the main policy storyline in the episode. Um, this is uh, – and, and, and well, let's see. I guess this is going to be self-explanatory about this piece of land um, that the Parks Department or the National Park Service wants – for national parkland, and that a private tech company wants and is competing for.
3: The Newport Family Trust intends to sell a 25-square-mile parcel of pristine, undeveloped land containing Lake Eagleton and the southern Indiana foothills. Why now? The Newports have owned this land for 100 years. Thanks to the recent economic boom in Pawnee, real estate prices are at an all-time high. And in the words of Jessica Wicks, Newport, heir to the entire Newport fortune, quote, it's time to trade those dumb old trees for a buttload of cash.
0: It is. It truly is. This land is begging to be a new national park, and it's in my own backyard. This could be my crowning achievement. I could retire. I mean, I wouldn't. I'm going to work until i 100 and then cut back to four days a week. Oh, God, I'm already so bored thinking about that one day off. Oh, maybe I'll go to law school or something.
3: We will select the finalists from a set of initial sealed bids due at 5 p.m. tomorrow.
1: So, Jeremy, if Leslie no. Know- wants to preserve the uh, Newport's land and turn it into a national park, the National Park Service has to obtain it first, but since it's currently owned by a private owner, she, uh, the Parks Department or the National Park Service, see I'm still stuck in the uh, pointy of the past, um, Leslie Nope has got to competitively bid against a corporation that also wants the land for its own greedy, nefarious purposes. Is that the way it ever works in real life?
3: Well, um, not exactly, but I guess maybe sometimes, uh, you know, I think there's um, something that's even more telling here in this story, and that is uh, these disputes over how land is used. And, you know, I think you can go back to the earliest days of our nation, and there's always been disagreements about, as, as our country has grown and developed, disputes over how certain parcels of land should be used. and um, there's some very historic uh, disputes, if you will, that have resulted in some of our nation's you know, most iconic places being protected, places like the Grand Canyon and Grand Tetons and Yosemite National Park.
1: And say she is able to broker a deal and purchase the land from the Newport family. What would be her next steps to make it into a national park? Would it be easier to use the Wilderness Act to preserve the land?
3: Well, uh, the Wilderness Act really applies to lands that are um, owned by all Americans, so um, national public lands. So probably not. that would not be the initial steps. So once the, uh, the Parks and Rec Department were uh, able to acquire the land, they could then uh, deed it over to uh, the Park Service or the, the federal government, um, and then there could be a number of ways which you could ultimately protect that Parcel of land, it could be um, designated as a national park. Uh, it could be designated wilderness if it qualifies via an act of Congress. So there's a couple different ways it could play out once the they acquire the land.
1: Listeners, did you watch Parks and Recreation last night? Did you want to ta- join our? Do you want to join our TV club and call in and uh, just talk about the show if you're a Parks and Recreation fan? And any other listeners, you can join us. Starting next Tuesday night, it's a very short season. They're doing this in six or seven weeks, this uh, final season of Parks and Rec. Or anybody who wants to comment on the land use issues that got raised in the show, 212-433-WNYC, 433 -433 Uh, So, Linda, it's 2017, as we said, and Ron, her libertarian, anti-government, former boss in the Pony, Indiana, local parks department, is now the enemy, representing the tech company that wants the land. And Leslie and he are now bitter enemies. Here's a bit from their contentious meeting last night. Hello, Miss Nope.
0: Hello, former strange person I used to friend. You're looking very... Ron-like.
1: You have your same hair.
0: No, I don't. I have bangs now.
1: I've never known what bangs are, and I don't intend to learn. Well,
0: maybe you should.
1: Yeah, maybe you should. So, uh, Linda, what happened to their formerly very sweet relationship?
2: Well, there is a little bit that has been elided here in terms of... uh, Clearly, they've had some sort of conflict that seems to have been about something called Morningstar, but they have not gone into a lot of detail... Uh, about that. At this point, you know, it's a it's a a show that has has managed to find a lot of comedy in in local government. Now they've moved on to the the uh, hilarity of land use planning. And I think what always has made the show strong is that kind of thing where it's that relationship that is now playing out in a in a land use dispute that is nevertheless really funny just because you know the people. And uh, apparently Ron and Leslie have had some kind of terrible and, and, and uh, disastrous
1: falling out. This is WNYC FM HD NAM New York, FM 88.1 Trenton, WNJP 88.5 Sussex, WNJY 89.3 Netcong, and WNJO 90.3 Toms River. It's New York and New Jersey Public Radio our Brian Lehrer TV Club, as we watch Parks and Recreation for its final season on Tuesday night and talk about it on Wednesday morning, 212-433-WNYC, 433-9692. Pat wants to join the conversation from Los Angeles. Hi, Pat.
0: Hi. I just wanted to say that I always loved the scenes with Tammy and Ron. Um, I always felt that it was a really well done, and that it was a real connection between those two. And then I found out recently that they were actually married in real life.
1: Right, then they are, yeah. aren't they?
0: Oh, they are. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and I think it comes through.
2: Yeah, I, I would agree. I think one of my favorite parts of the the uh, first two episodes was Amy Poehler unveiling her Megan Mullally impression, which was extraordinarily entertaining to me.
1: A lot of people liked that on Twitter last night. Yeah, I believe I it. Pat, Pat, thank you very much. Um, Let's see. Um, Part of the charm of parks and recreation was always the hilarity of working within the dysfunctional local government. But it turns out it's still happening for Leslie. Linda, are you satisfied there will be enough of that in this final season?
2: Well, you know, again, it's a show that, that, uh, is so challenged because it's now working with these really big issues. She's gone into the federal government and yet everything in the show is so small in terms of what makes it funny and also what makes it really heartfelt. So it's, it definitely feels like it's undergone a shift and it's a little disorienting to me and I, and I miss everybody in that little, in that little cheap looking office, but, um, but yes, I'm I'm optimistic. It's a real. It's always been a really sure-footed show, uh, you know, from about the second season, and I um, I, I trust them a lot compared to, to a lot of people who make television.
1: Could this destroy some of the small town charm of Pawnee that was at the heart of part of the heart of the uh, the charm of the show? Here, here's Leslie from the first episode.
0: Who cares if Grizzle and Ron have more money? I have the most valuable currency in America, a blind, stubborn belief that what I am doing is 100% right.
1: So is that just Leslie's usual determination and single-mindedness or a sly comment on the intractable state of Congress now that she's in the National Park Service, or maybe both?
2: Uh, You know, Leslie has always been wonderful and decent and completely delusional, and that's always been a big part of what makes her such a fantastic public servant is that nothing makes her conclude that she's not going to get her way. Which, you know, the fantasy of Parks and Rec, what they, are, what they are kind of aspiring to is this idea that if you are really determined and really a good person and you really mean it, you can figure out a way to get people to work for, for things together.
1: Jeremy, is there precedence for this? Have there ever been examples of the federal government buying valuable land from a private company and then successful, successfully preserving it or a private ownership uh, like a family trust?
3: Yeah, there are. You know, I, I can't think of a specific example off the top of my head, but I I do know that there are rec- there are examples of the either the, the private uh, landowners deeding land to the government or um, land being purchased uh, via to, a tool known as the Land and Water Conservation Fund, a really uh, important tool to protecting open spaces where uh, the government then uh, becomes the owner of the land, and that land is then uh, protected and managed in a way to benefit um, the American people.
1: So in the second episode, the city council is going to vote on the land use uh, issue here and maybe preempt the entire competitive bidding process by just declaring it as an act of law, uh, you know, land to be preserved and given to the National Park Service. Here is Leslie on the swing voter on the council who will have the final say.
0: The deciding vote is from my old city councilmate and human equivalent of gas station sushi, Jeremy Jam.
1: Linda, can you remind us what was going on there? That was the funniest lines of the hour, I thought.
0: Yeah, Jeremy
2: Jam is a, a member of the Pawnee City Council who was a longtime uh, adversary of Leslie's when that was her job. And he is... Um, it's hard to it's boy, it's hard to explain that guy. Parks and Rec has a lot of these characters where it's like, who? it's hard to explain that guy. But he is uh, sort of terrible and turned out to be involved with Ron's um, second ex-wife, Tammy. There's Tammy one and Tammy two. He was involved with Tammy two, who's the one that we were talking about, played by Megan Mullally. So now Leslie was up against uh, not only Ron, but also her her evil adversary from the city council and Ron's evil ex-wife.
1: And, Jeremy, if the council does vote to rezone the land as, um, you know, to be given to the Park Service before it's sold, is the National Park Service – well, let let, let me ask you this. At the national level, does Congress do this? Does Congress preempt a bidding war for land that might be preserved um, by just declaring it one thing or another?
3: uh... no not really the way I mean, there's a lot of different ways land can be protected and congress is a key uh... element to some of those means of protection and what the way it works and this is what's really unique about protecting land uh, it it gives people a great opportunity to engage with their elected officials and all the way to congress and the way we see this play out is oftentimes congress uh... will respond to the local communities and the local will of their constituents if a land, if a piece of land uh, if they desire to see a piece of land protected and it's been playing out that way for decades and just recently we saw this uh, play out with over a million acres of conservation across our country were just protected as part of the national defense authorization act and those represented decades-long efforts of local citizens working to protect places and that they were responding to the will of the people that's the way it's always worked and it's continuing to work today despite you know a lot of what we hear of the system being broken and not working
1: now let's listen to the character april who's been working for leslie at the national park service
3: Eight years ago,
2: I accepted a random internship at the parks department, and then Leslie told me to do a bunch of stuff, and now I'm executive director of regional whatever, I don't even know what it means, and I never even asked myself if I even really like it. I mean, it's like, what is my purpose in life? What do I even care about? My insides are dying.
1: So, not fine.
2: I don't know what to do. I have to quit.
1: To do
3: what?
2: I'm just gonna go live under a bridge and ask people riddles
0: before they cross.
1: Linda, what's going on with April.
2: Uh, You know, April came into the show in the first season as a young intern and very um, uh, disconnected from everything, but gradually was kind of sucked in by Leslie's enthusiasm for getting things done. And April went through a variety of little jobs. She got involved in a a pet adoption thing and got involved in, in animal control. And now, apparently, has has worked her way into this other job. But one of the things I think is really interesting about where they're going with this is that after all of this growth for April, they're making it clear that then she gets to this point. uh, She's gotten married. She's worried. She's getting boring. And she gets to that point where even with all this growth and even with all this great stuff, she still has that moment of thinking... Is this really what i wanted which is which is interesting because the, the she had been on such an arc of kind of becoming this fully realized person
1: and I thought that was the most, one of the most interesting things in last night 's episodes was this angst uh, between her and her husband Andy. Over them actually becoming adults, right they were looking for a house to buy, and you know they were going to this new new phase of adult, of young adulthood and just deciding that it was absolutely creepy and boring to them, and they hated who were they be- who they were becoming even at the same even at the same time as they were starting to embrace it as the new them
2: yeah, this is really one of my favorite elements of the show is this relationship between between uh Chris and uh, between Andy and April, Chris Pratt and Aubrey Plaza play those roles. And I think that um, they've done a great job of building that as this love story between these genuinely odd people who I think now have really grown up and have had a lot of great experiences but still are fundamentally weirdos and want to make sure that that doesn't get lost as they become adults. And I, it's, a, it's a really, I agree with you, it's a really interesting and, and surprisingly uh, nuanced story.
1: And one thing before you go, um, they seem to be doing this as a little mini-binge every week on Tuesday nights, playing two half-hour back-to-back episodes. It's been a half-hour show, but they're taking a one-hour slot, eight to nine on Tuesday nights on NBC, for this um, final episode, and they're just going to do it over, what, six or seven weeks, uh, I guess, the, thir- the 13 episodes. And so um, there uh, is this a reaction to, you know, to Netflix and the, just the way people are watching TV, they're trying to make a little event here instead of just another episode of the series rolling out every Tuesday. Boy,
2: I, I would love to think that's what it is. Unfortunately, when they when they show episodes back to back, it often winds up feeling like the show is being bum rushed out of town. Uh, it's a show that has constantly been on the the bubble and the verge of getting canceled. So, to me, I tend to receive it a little bit more as, oh, of course, out of you know, after all this stuff, now you're going to kind of uh, you know rush it off the schedule. But perhaps yes, perhaps we can think of it as a series of tiny binges and and be comforted by that.
1: And we leave it there for this week. We've been speaking with NPR's Linda Holmes, host of NPR's entertainment and pop culture blog, Monkey C., and Jeremy Garnkars, the senior director for designations from the Wilderness Society. Thank you both so much for being on today. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And Linda will do it again next Wednesday. Brian Lehrer on WNYC, stay with us. As we turn now to the news that al-Qaeda in Yemen has taken responsibility for the attacks in Paris. How should the United States respond? We'll talk to Wall Street Journal foreign affairs columnist Brett Stevens.